Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Welcome back to the show. Hope you're doing well. On this episode, I interviewed Chuck Mingo and Troy Jackson. They wrote a book called Living Undivided, Loving Courageously for Racial Healing and Justice. This was a great interview. They offer some great perspectives on ways to help people, especially people inside the church, learn about how to be really anti-racist and how to fight for better ways forward in their faith. I appreciated both of their perspectives. The book is out now. Pick it up if you're interested. It really is a fantastic read. So I hope you enjoy this interview. That being said, friends, of course, as always, thank you so much for being here. It means the world that you listen to the show. If you want to help support the work that we do, feel free to give this episode a rating and a review on podcasts or on YouTube if you're watching it there. We are a nonprofit organization. What that means is that we are totally funded by the generosity of people like yourself. If you want to support the work that we do, you can donate in the link below. All donations made in the U.S. are tax deductible. Hopefully, you've been enjoying the different show format. We've been trying new things, new episodes, new types of content. Would, of course, love your feedback on that as well. All right. Without further ado, friends, here's my interview with Chuck and Troy. I hope you enjoy it. Talk to you all later on. Hey there, my name is Christian from the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area, and I serve on the New Evangelicals board as one of the people who helps foster a community through Zoom conversations, other online events outside of Facebook, and I'm super proud to be a donor and a supporter and a participant in the important conversations we're having as it feels like our our faith in our country is being hijacked to become, well, in my, in my opinion, less and less Christian, less and less like Jesus. So I love our T&E community. I also support Project Amplify because I love seeing, I love hearing other smart, helpful, hopeful, educated voices being elevated to show that there's a better way forward for those who want to follow the life-changing teachings of Jesus. I'm proud of the consistently kind, humanizing, respectful, and yet red flag raising content that T&E produces. All right. Well, Troy and Chuck, it is great to have you on the podcast. You wrote a book, Living Undivided, Loving Courageously for Racial Healing and Justice. It is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Absolutely. Let's just start here. I would like to really, maybe Chuck, we can start with you. Why don't you give us a a small snippet of your background and the work that you do now and why you decided to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, so I'm still an Eagles fan. You know, do you know that I live 15 minutes from Philadelphia? No, where do you live? I'm in South Jersey. I'm right across the bridge. Where in South Jersey are you? I'm in the Burlington area. All right. Yeah, I know Burlington. So my first my first job was with Procter and Gamble out of school. Oh my goodness. And I was a pharmaceutical sales rep in South Jersey. So I went all the way down to Violin and had oh, Woodbury yeah. and all, all the oh, all yeah. the spaces. Uh, Zagara's I, I, Deli. Is Zagara's Deli still a thing? 
I, I, I actually have never heard of that before, but now I'm oh, interested man. in looking it up. So, so good. <laughs> I also want to say, so I, as an Eagles fan, I, I do share your sorrow and sadness for the oh. absolute bomb of a, of a second half of a season we had. It was terrible. I've never so. seen it. I've never in any sport seen an implosion worse than what the Eagles It was horrible. It, so. it was. Oh and I, gosh. you know, one thing, I've gotten into sports more and more because it's something I can get into without having serious consequences about, right? So every mm-hmm, morning mm-hmm. after the Eagles lose, I'm like, well, I'm going to turn on our local station is 94. Four one yeah. and just oh, yeah. listen W-I-T. to them whine and complain. And so, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so anyway, keep going. But yeah, that's good, great. Good, yeah. Good so yeah. So I grew up in Philadelphia and grew up in a black church, small church. So faith was a part of my life from very very early on. And then from there, went to college in Pittsburgh and really was on the path of being a, you know, business person. I my I, my joke used to be I wanted to be on the cover of Black Enterprise magazine. Like I really wanted to make my mint and make my mark in business. And part of that was the opportunity to work for a company called Procter & Gamble. And that's what ultimately led me to Cincinnati, where I am now. And in coming to Cincinnati, you know, as a follower of Jesus, was looking for a church, had no idea that the church that I wound up joining was going to be such a trajectory change in my life. So I met my wife in college. And I remember because she's from back East as well. And I remember saying to her, hey, if you move with me to Cincinnati when we get married, it's like prison. Like we'll we'll go home after like two, three years because I get out for good behavior. So I did not have plans of staying in Cincinnati long term. Um, but God had different plans. And I got connected to Crossroads Church where I'm still a teaching pastor today. At that time, they were meeting in a school, predominantly white church. I grew up in predominantly African-American church context. But there was something special about this place. But I remember even early on being at Crossroads and realizing like, man, if I go to this church, I might not know another black person in Cincinnati. And so I left and was about to join a very, very good African-American Baptist church here in Cincinnati. When I heard, you know, I've only heard the audible voice of God one time. This was not one of those times, but this was pretty close. And I just felt the call to go back to Crossroads, not knowing what that would mean for not just the church experience that I had, but ultimately you know, six or so years later, I would leave Procter and Gamble to become a pastor, so step into ministry. And then in 2014, I would take another leap of faith. Well, 2015, after meeting Troy Jackson to launch Undivided, and so that's really the journey that's led me to the ministry that Troy and myself helped to co-found with some others, and then also lead with an incredible group of people today. Hmm. Thanks for sharing. How about you, Troy? Yeah. So first, I guess I need to give my East Coast uh, bona fides. So. I attended Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. And was there from in the early 90s. And my wife, Amanda, and I were big fans of the 93 Phillies team. So that dates us a bit. That's our biggest Philadelphia sports (laughs) connection. But uh, yeah, good to be with you, Tim. Grew up in Indiana, General Motors town called Anderson, about 40 minutes or so from Indianapolis. Got involved in an all-white evangelical slash fundamentalist church when I was about five years old, grew up there, learned to love Jesus and love scripture. And in examining scripture, began to see a heart for the poor and a heart for bridging difference and justice that I did not hear a lot of from the pulpit or in Sunday school or in youth group. So although our youth pastor did connect us to another Philly guy, Tony Campolo, Mm -hmm. back in the 80s and watched his video series. And when Tony Campolo was speaking about poverty and race, it just said, oh, this is all over the Bible because I'd been 
reading scripture regularly by that time and ended up going to Princeton after college. And my wife and I moved here to Cincinnati in 1994. I pastored a church for almost 20 years, right in the heart of the city near the University of Cincinnati, did a doctorate in civil rights history, was an editor of the King Papers Project, and so did a lot of examination of the civil rights movement and Dr. King. And after finishing that degree, which took me like nine years because I was pastoring and had a young family at the same time, I felt God say, what it would it look like for me to learn how to do what I'd been studying? Uh, Chuck and I often joke that Micah 6.8 does not say, what does the Lord require of you, but to read about justice or learn about justice or talk about justice. It's doing justice. So that's where God called me and I got involved in justice work, which is how I met uh, Chuck when I was leading a group called the Amos Project, which was bringing together congregations and actually a multi-faith coalition to work uh, to bring uh, preschool to over a thousand children in our city of Cincinnati, which we helped make happen in 2016, but also got invited into the earliest days of forming what became Undivided. Mm. Yeah. So what exactly is Undivided? Is, is it a nonprofit organization? What kind of work do y'all do? Yeah, so it is. It's a nonprofit. And our mission is to unite and ignite people for racial justice. And we say the order matters. So the first thing is, how do we bring people together across difference? And so we have, among other things, kind of a core seven-week experience, two hours a week, where people come together across race. And it's a facilitated experience where we dive into history there's faith grounding every week. We connect this to the scriptures. What does God have to say about this? And then we actually help people share their stories and listen to the stories of other people and then get what I would call a sanctified imagination for how to actually do the work of justice. That it doesn't just have to be a conversation, but as followers of Jesus, there are ways that we actually go out and not just do the mercy works, which are important and necessary. The soup kitchens of the world are necessary, but we really want to help followers of Jesus change systems, systems and structures of injustice in their communities so that it's a place where everybody can thrive and that's more equitable for everyone in the community. Mm. Yeah, and we're okay. doing some of that work of moving people from I, we talk a lot about the church needs to be rediscipled around uh, race and justice. We have not done a good job forming our people. So our anchor living undivided experience is a for, spiritual formation discipleship process. And then for those who are ready in places like Cincinnati and Michigan, Chicagoland, we are supporting folks who are moving upstream to do work on voting rights and housing, affordable and attainable housing in their communities. Yeah, I think that sounds wonderful. And I understand that both of you need to be the ones who are trying to bridge the gap here. So I'm not trying to get you to say things that might be controversial. But, you know, we track a lot of what's happening in white evangelical spaces. We track Christian nationalism. I've been to Turning Point America Fest. I mean, I, I know what's going on there. And frankly, I'm I'm just kind of curious. I know that you probably see a lot of the same things. I'm sure you've seen the rhetoric that's been elevated over the past couple months and year now regarding things like, you know, attacking DEI or just saying things I'm like, you know, this sounds awfully familiar from back in like the 60s and 70s, evangelicals who were against MLK's movement and integration. So when you hear that stuff, I struggle with trying to find common ground that can lead to some kind of racial healing when it seems like in my estimation, one side is pretty much doubling down on on a, a colorblind faith that ultimately leaves those systems of injustice in power. Yeah, I I think you're hitting on the the climate we find ourselves in. We have a a theme we have for 2024 for some of the work we're doing in Undivided Dreaming in the Dark and part of it is it these are dark days. 
And I think when we see the rise of white Christian nationalism or maybe the unmasking of white Christian nationalism would be a better way of, of saying it. It can be, uh, it can feel overwhelming. And what I believe is true is that there are people in congregations, in evangelical churches around this country, and those that are struggling to stay or who have recently left, who have a deep sense of God's call for racial healing, solidarity, and justice in their lives, in their congregations, and in their communities. Uh, we have a, a research partner, Dr. Hari Khan, who leads the SNF Agora Institute on Democracy at the Johns Hopkins University, so a major political scientist who has studied our work and says what we really do well is take people who feel isolated and alone and are passive when it comes to race uh, and justice in the church and in the Christian community. Uh, and, and there's a lot of folks who feel like I am the only one that has this deep dissonance between what I perceive to be the norm in my culture, in my congregation, from the pulpit, and what I see in Jesus. They think they're the only one. They get in our experiences. They get in our community. And the data shows they get connected so that's the unifying. And they are when they build community, they're actually able to take action and move together. And so we have great hope in Jesus. We have great hope in the church. And we have great hope in Jesus followers. I know there are some that are all in on MAGA and white Christian nationalism. A lot of folks, though, think that's what they're supposed to do, but are not convinced. And that's part of who we're connecting with. And also there's folks who are just ready for an invitation. They're ready for that invitation like Jesus gave to come and see, see what it could be like to be in a community of Jesus followers radically pursuing racial healing, solidarity, and justice. And we have over 10,000 people that have partnered with us so far, and we think that's just the beginning. Well, I certainly hope it's the beginning. No doubt about that. You know, I think it's really important more than ever. I think that things are getting more polarizing, whether we want to admit that or not. And I I find myself often, and maybe, listen, maybe I'm wrong. I, I feel like like your proposition is trying to find maybe this like third way. I've heard about this a few times now. Like, okay, maybe it's not just this work of, of, of anti-racist work or it's not just the far right, but it's this third way. And I'm always intrigued to hear about alternate options to what we have, but I'm struggling to find that quote unquote middle ground because it just seems like things are getting so polarizing and I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah. Well, well Tim, I mean, you're, you're not alone. And I think there's a lot of empathy there that we have. I forget the name of the author of the book, but one of the books that we've been introduced to is one that talks about the other evangelicals, right? And, you know, I think sometimes we oh, think Isaac about Sharp. the... Yes, yes. He's we a great think friend. About, He's great. You know, when we could think about like, okay, there are these extreme expressions that use the label evangelical. And I would argue, and I think you might agree, that's become more of a political label than a theological label. So when you look at people who identify with that label, you, you know all this, your listeners know all this. A lot of times those people don't align to what we would call some basic tenets of following Jesus in terms of even like church attendance and Bible reading and believing that Jesus is the only one. I mean, there's just some basic things that... Are, are, that speak to it being more of a political label than anything else. And so I do think that that middle ground is a tension point, but the third way is an opportunity. I think about the fact that the church has always been called to be a counterculture, right? Like the, the church of Jesus in whatever context you want to name in the Roman empire and in other places around the world, certainly in countries in Africa has 
represented a counterculture. And I think what we believe is as it relates to the legacy and the story of racism in America, there's still an opportunity for the church to become a counterculture. But what people need is tools and vehicles. They need tools in terms of ways to think about this biblically and theologically, but then they need vehicles to live it out. Howard Thurman is one of the people who inspires Troy and myself, and he's famous for the saying, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs are people who have come alive. And what we're seeing in a small way and undivided, and in other places too, in other partner ministries that we're connected to, is people coming alive to the calling of racial healing and justice. And it matters, because I think this is one of the reasons why many young people are walking away from the church. Is not rooted most deeply in Jesus. It's reactionary. So we think a lot about Romans 12 too, which talks about not being conformed to the patterns of this world, uh, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that there's something about the transforming work of Jesus that is actually calling us deeper into following the Jesus of scripture and the gospels and using that as a framework for public life that may have some overlap with more progressive or more conservative themes occasionally, but that's not our playing field. We, we will not be conformed to that uh, pattern. And we believe we're called to something much deeper and much more radical than these very flawed uh, systems and movements, which are actually fraying at the edges themselves. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of curious because you're actually great people to ask this to. I, I hear this often in spaces I engage with, you know, um, like, for example, Paul Miller, uh, he wrote a book um, that's kind of in the same vein of like, hey, we don't want to be left or right. We want to be kingdom centered. Uh, Preston Sprinkle would probably hold to similar ideas. I, I totally get that. My concern, and I told both of them this, and I'll, I'll ask you the same question, get your thoughts. I really am struggling to understand who this radical left is. I, I can't think about, I, I'm not aware of any equivalent of, of a Tucker Carlson on the left. I don't know who an Alex Jones would be on the left. I don't know who a Donald Trump would be on the left. I don't know who a Turning Point USA organization would be on the left. And so I'm just, I, I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that, that, that there aren't people in these left spaces that maybe I would want to distance myself from for a variety of reasons. I'm just not aware, and I would love your insight, what when we say radical left, what exactly are we talking about? I mean, AOC, if you look at her policies, for example, which the right demonizes as radical, I read her stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty, I mean, it's it's progressive, but it's not crazy stuff. I mean, it's like affordable health care, you know, a better immigration policy. It's, it's like, okay, this is pretty reasonable. So for you, who are you comparing and contrasting with this far right versus this far left? I can start and Chuck, if you want to add to this. So I spend a lot of time because I'm in community organizing in spaces that are very progressive. There is a fundamentalism on the left that is deep around you check all these boxes, have all these views or you are out. I sense a similar thing and I've seen it on X or Twitter, social media around a very tightly wound theology and perspective on the right. Now, one big difference is typically that expression on the left is not rooted in Christian ideology, theology. There is not an organized Christian left in this movement. So I'm also, I agree with you. I don't think it's a, a whataboutism or moral equivalence that we need to draw. And frankly, the real threat to Christianity and the evangelical church has been this rise of white Christian nationalism and a MAGA movement that has set up high places 
that are contesting with the preeminence of Jesus. So what I was saying earlier is not to create any false equivalency. And there is this fundamentalism that I run up against all the time that I have to believe or you have to fit all these boxes or you, you're out. And some of this shows up on social media and some of the virtue signaling that we do see. I think that's real. Chuck, I don't know if you'd want to add anything. No, I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that if I were going to add anything, I would say the thing that can often be missing from both expressions can be this, this call to love and healing and grace and that the power of being in struggle together, even in our difference, is actually one that gives strength to all. And again, I just go back to the picture of the church. I think about the church in Antioch, right? You know, you have this, you have this pretty monolithic church in Jerusalem that amazing things are happening, right? You know, uh, Pentecost was pretty dope. Like that was a pretty cool day. <laughs> pretty, went for the church. But even that day was meant to bring other people and other expressions of the diaspora into this work and movement that God was doing through the Holy Spirit and through the work of Christ. And I think the church in Antioch really reflects that, where you have these people who have very different backgrounds. And yet that's the church that planted Paul. That's the church that planted all of these missionary movements Many of us today, if we were going to trace our spiritual lineage, it wouldn't be to the church of Jerusalem as much as it would be to the church that was birthed out of Antioch. And so I think that's the opportunity we have to live into as the church when it comes to things like race and when it comes to many of the other things that can often kind of live on extremes. Friends, it's no secret that Christian nationalism is on the rise and threatens the rights of all of our neighbors. You also know I'm a big believer in shared values over shared beliefs, and you know that we are committed to working together with all kinds of folks to protect democracy in 2023. That's why I'm proud to let you know about the Summit for Religious Freedom hosted by Americans United taking place in Washington, D.C. April 14th through the 16th. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited because keynote speakers include Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism, who we've had on the show before, and Representative Jamie Raskin, a vocal opponent of authoritarianism and Christian nationalism. The Summit for Religious Freedom is a big tent full of all kinds of people from different walks of life and holding different beliefs, uniting under the shared value of protecting the rights of all of our neighbors. So grab a ticket, let's hang out and learn all about the ways we can resist Christian nationalism and protect freedom for all. Go to the srf.org for more information. And if you can't make it in person, that's okay. You can always grab a digital ticket and join us from virtually anywhere. Get it? That's T-H-E-S-R-F dot org, hosted by Americans United for Separation of Church and State, April 14th through the 16th. I'll see you there. Yeah, Troy, I, I, I definitely can say I have seen that as well. In fact, we often say that we don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again, because fundamentalism, I think, is the problem. I've met atheists who are fundamentalists. I've met Christians. You know, it, it's not a Christian exclusive issue, even though my experience has given me a very direct pipeline to that white evangelical fundamentalism. That, that's how I grew up, for example. And I do agree that there are definitely times, especially online, I would say more than in person, where I've experienced or I've rubbed up against the purity test, right? Where, okay, you have to have all these things seen this way and there's no room for disagreement. And I think what I've noticed is that my my thoughts oftentimes are, well, I agree with the principle 
goal, right? Like we want equity. We want racial justice. Sometimes I'm not sure if I agree with the method. So is there room to disagree with the method, even though we agree with the goal? Many times I hear yes, but sometimes to your point, I do hear no, like this is the only way. And so I, I, I can understand that. And I appreciate you clarifying because I think a lot of my audience really sees the money and the funding and the rhetoric that has been steeped or that has been stepped up over the past few months and really year with white, with white Christian nationalism. I mean, one, one example of this is that recently Charlie Kirk, someone who I track and follow often, a clip of him went viral because he was talking about how essentially what he said was if he sees a black pilot, he worries if they're not qualified because of, of, of the problems of DEI. And I'm like, that is racist, dude. Like this is, yes. this is yes. the same stuff, yes. right? And Charlie yes. Kirk is someone who is embedding himself into not hundreds, but thousands of white evangelical spaces. Pastors go to his events. Dream City Church, Luke Barnett's church just hosted Trump and Charlie Kirk there. So I'm, what I'm seeing is like, this is literally almost KKK level language being reborn in 2024 and white evangelicals are many of them anyway, are absorbing this. And I think that makes your work really difficult because one of the difficult or one of the, the trickiest parts about what I call is like the minefield that white evangelical nationalism puts into someone's brain is that certain words set off a landmine. Right. So if you say we want to, we want to be justice focused. We want to be inclusive. Oh my God. But the landmine, oh, you're, you're a liberal. You're just a, a woke liberal. I, I can't believe anything you have to say. So how do you, because you're dealing with what sounds like a lot of white evangelical spaces trying to push for racial reconciliation and healing. So how do you get around some of those landmines that I'm sure you're aware are baked into the brains of well-intentioned people who have just, you know, been indoctrinated, frankly, in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the reasons why our approach is so relational, why it's seven weeks and you know, two hours a week, really giving people space to learn more than just the headlines or bullet points of someone's story and about what we at Undivided think about these things. How do we steep you in it? I think that's why it's so important to take that approach because otherwise you do. I mean, I think about what C.S. Lewis said about how do you get beyond people's watchful dragons, right? And what we have found is one of the ways to do that is through relationship. It's really hard to hate up close. And it's really hard for me to generalize up close. And as I begin to see and connect to your story, and we give people skills on how to do that. We talk about empathy and train on how to listen empathically. There are other things that we're training people to do in this experience. I think people have at least the opportunity to hold space with someone who is different without making the conclusion that I know everything about you based on one word. The other thing I would say is to go back to what we said, this is a spiritual formation opportunity. So for instance, the word justice shows up over 418 times in the Old Testament. You know, it's connected to righteousness and justice spoke in the throne of God in Psalm 89. Like this is a part of God's character and nature. Jesus in Matthew, when he's, when he's going against the Pharisees, he doesn't say, woe to you because you tithe your tent, uh, dill, mint, and cumin, and that's all you should do. He says, yeah, you should do that. But you've forgotten the weightier matters of the law, which are righteousness and mercy. And so I think that there's an opportunity to help followers of Jesus really orient ourselves in the scriptures more than in our news feeds, more than in our social media followings on what these words actually mean in Christian terms. So in the book, we take some time to do that. We, we, we define what we mean by racial solidarity, what we mean by justice, what we mean by these words, and we steep them in scripture so that as people are going on the journey with us in the book, 
they know that we're coming at this as practitioners who want to practice the way of Jesus, not necessarily people who come at it from some ideological point of view. Yeah, I think that's really great. And frankly, as someone who used to be a fundamentalist, you can you can apply a literalist approach to the scripture and come away with, with those conclusions very easily, to your point, right? Justice is yeah. all over the Hebrew Bible. James 5 is a massive critique of, of, of corporate business owners who exploit their poor. Jesus says, liberate the oppressed, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's not yeah, like you yeah. have to go that deep to, to get to some of these no. conclusions. And I, I agree, <laughs> the relationship is key. There's a reason why I go to America Fest. There's a reason why I talk to these people because they're made in the Imago Day, right? We have a very strict policy yes. of non-dehumanization. And also, I think pragmatically, I ask myself, how do we get how do I get what I want out of this conversation? Right. Meaning, how do <laughs> right. I convince someone to see things in a better way? Well, pragmatically, that starts by lowering their defenses and letting them know Absolutely. I'm not a threat. I'm not here to blast you online. I just want to talk. There's actually someone, I'm going to name drop her here. I never did this before publicly, but her name is Patriot Barbie, okay? And she has quite the account online. I don't recommend looking up her content. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty brutal. But we went head-to-head a couple of years ago on social media. I called her out on something she called me out. We met at America Fest. We shook hands, and we became quite friendly. And we, we talked on and off while I was there. I saw her again at the last time I was at America Fest, she gave me a big hug, gave me all this stuff, said how much she appreciates me coming out. We had some great conversations, one where we found some some surprising common ground. And I will tell you mm. that because of that relationship, I've been able to ask her questions in ways I would never be able to do if it was just me online calling out her work and calling her whatever, homophobic or racist, et cetera, right? And I, I'm not sure long-term if I'm going to be able to change her mind on everything, but if I can get her just to lower the temperature on what she says online for the sake of the people that we represent, that's a win in my book, right? So I totally Absolutely. align with the relationship first you know, approach. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I want to come back to something you are pointing out though, Tim, which is the unbelievable amount of resources that are going into things like Turning Point USA Faith, uh, where they're inviting pastors and pastors' spouses to retreats, paying for everything, everything, giving playbooks on how to grow your church by marrying with patriotism and white Christian nationalism. There is no equivalent in terms of countering white Christian nationalism. I don't know how many millions and hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on the He Gets Us campaign. I'm sure we'll see another commercial at the Super Bowl. And I have no qualms with that. But there is an assumption that an air campaign or a commercial will actually be able to do the life-on-life work that needs to happen on the ground. Is the right user, we were just on a call recently, the right is using bots, they're using algorithms, they're using AI to target and spread disinformation and things that are counter to the gospel of Jesus. We were talking to someone around how do we how do we redeem some of those things? And I think it's important to pay attention to organize data and messaging and all that sort of thing. But fundamentally, our democracy, uh, which I'd say is like maybe fifteenth on our priorities, and our the future of the church in the United States, which is way up high on our priorities. As being faithful to Jesus demands relationships, life on life, like the one you were describing, um, viewing the Imago Dei, viewing, and, and that happens best in containers and spaces like churches and communities and neighborhoods and coffee shops. 
We cannot let that die. And I'll say one other thing, the crisis we are facing that is fueling a lot of the toxic polarization and putting it on steroids is isolation and loneliness. And so part of what Undivided is committed to, and many of the folks we're working with in this space, is just the belief that community itself has redemptive power. And if we're going to make any advances on racial healing, solidarity, and justice, and save the democracy to the extent it's worth saving, it's got to be rooted in relationship that counters loneliness and isolation. I couldn't agree more strongly. Part of the deconstruction explosion, one of the major themes I've heard, and I've been doing this for a couple of years now, I've received probably over 20,000 DMs over the course of, I mean, it's so many messages. We get emails often. I hear all the time how lonely the process is. People have lost their faith community. They they don't know where to go. And listen, the, the pandemic didn't help, right? We all understand why we had lockdowns. I totally get it, but but there's still there's still a trade off to that. And I think I'll, I think there's been such a massive shift in so many ways so quickly. People who maybe their whole life was church, who then lost their church, don't know where to go. They don't know where to find people in person. And listen, I'll be the first one to tell my community this. I do often. I'm grateful that we have a private Facebook community. I'm grateful that we do Zoom groups. I'm grateful that you and I can talk, you know, Chuck and Troy over this program. But nothing, nothing beats embodied conversation. Like, Flat out. Nothing beats calling your friend for a random target run and just doing that impromptu thing. You can't replicate that stuff online. And I completely agree that the way we change things long term, it's really both and, right? I think about on the political level, I get the activism. I get that we have work to do. We have to call out the harmful stuff. I have no problem addressing and critiquing what Turning Point is doing. People who are harmed by that stuff need to see people, especially in my opinion, white men like myself who was birthed out of this movement say what needs to be said. Okay, got that. Simultaneously, my approach, and I think the approach we need to have more and more for those who who are called to do it, I guess we can say, is this one of like, hey, I'm willing to still talk to you though. I'm willing to sit down with you and have the conversation, even though I'm doing everything I can to oppose you in the legal realm, because what you're advocating for is hurting people, right? So the posture can't be, I don't want to create more, uh, I don't want to recreate violence of, oh, we have to destroy our own enemy, right? Now we're, we're, right. we're, we're in this cycle of chaos. The goal is how do we have a posture of openness that invites people to a life of repentance, turning away from their supremacy, from their racism, from whatever it is, right? Saying there's a better way forward in our faith. And what Dr. Roberto would say, how do we compost supremacy, not destroy it? Mm. And I like that language mm. much more because mm. I, I think it's a much mm-hmm. more redemptive mm-hmm. way of thinking it's about redemptive these language. things. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I also want to say this too. I think it's important in this conversation to recognize, and we, you know, we obviously my lived experience as a black man is different than you as two white men, that part of the thing that we really are grateful for at Undivided is how many of the leaders in our space have helped our approach be less harmful to Black, Indigenous, and people of color, to people whose stories can often be trotted out as examples or who feel like they have to be the one voice in the room that has this lived experience. And so we're very intentional in the design of these experiences to, as much as we can, minimize the harm to people of color. So, you know, we do that through ratios and making sure that we're not putting one person of color in a context where they're the only one sharing that story. We have elevated and really two leaders on our team, Brittany Wade and Courtney Walton have really elevated healing. And so part of the undivided experience 
leverages things like music and art and creativity to create healing spaces in the middle of this journey. Because I think that's the other thing that's so important to realize we've all been harmed by racism and its effects. It's a sin. And just like every sin, it's harmful to the Imago Dei. And so part of the vision that we have is to create these spaces where healing and restoration happen together. I love that. Let's talk about your book for a minute because I have a copy of it in front of me. You're on the podcast to, I'm assuming, talk about and promote the book that you have written, <laughs> Living Undivided, Loving Courageously for Racial Healing and Justice. Who is this book written for? Like, Who is your primary audience here? Tell, t- tell me that first. Yeah, I, I go back to what Troy said a bit ago. You know, I think, quite frankly, it's it's someone like you, Tim. It's someone like you and maybe someone who doesn't have the clarity, the platform, and the vision already that you clearly have, but wants to. They're, they're saying, hey, I, I see this. I don't need to be convinced that this is a problem, but how do I faithfully follow a path as a follower of Jesus to be about the work of racial healing and justice? That's who this book is written for. We said we wanted the book to be two things, a bat signal and a roadmap. So the bat signal is we want those people to know you're not alone. You're not alone if you are sitting in this place of saying, I, I want change. I'm not quite sure what I do to bring about that change. And that could be a person from any walk of life. But then we also want this to be a roadmap because we're not just inviting you to learn some principles in the book. We're inviting you to join a community. We're inviting you to become practitioners with the many thousands of people who have already partnered with Undivided to do this work in local context and literally change cities and countries and, and, you know, through this work. And so we hope that the book is reaching that person. And that person's probably a person who has some belief in Jesus. They're probably a person who hasn't totally given up on this idea that God wants to use the church to change the world. They may not see it in their church. They may not be connected to a church. And they also are a person who has gifts and talents and there's a way for them to actually make a difference and be a part of a better story. Yeah. And and I think what there's been, as you know, Tim, and you probably interviewed many, there've been a lot of books on race and racism over the past five, 10 years. It struck me recently that we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary in August of Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown and in our neck of the woods, John Crawford III, who was killed that same week with a toy gun in a Walmart north of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've been in a racial reckoning that goes back to Trayvon Martin, which uh, was even longer ago, more than a decade now. We We believe, yes, we are scholars, we are thinkers, we are leaders, we're also practitioners. So hopefully people can see folks who are not just theorizing about this stuff but are implementing it. And I think a big piece of, and and I would even go back to your comment about Turning Point USA, part of what we want folks to reckon with is the role of power in the work. We, we do not want to foster folks who are doing another book club and another book club and another book club, or folks who are simply the critic uh, of what's going on and saying the thing, we want folks to take seriously, what does it mean to build power, Uh, which we think about organized resources, organized people, organized ideas and theology. And we have very few skills in the white evangelical church to do it. White evangelicalism is steeped in power, but doesn't talk about it, does not have a good theology of power, and does not help people think about what does it mean to actually start organizing people together to bring the changes we want to see, not just critique what we wish was or what is happening now and wish would be different. What is up? This is Trip from the Home Brewed Christianity podcast, and I am pumped to 
tell you about, Project Amplify. That is something that the new evangelicals are up to. It's a new endeavor. And guess what? I've been a longtime supporter of T&E. And when I heard about Project Amplify, I'm like, oh, junk. That sounds great. Why? Why? Well, when Christianity shows up in the public square, I usually have a hard time associating with its content with, I don't know, what Jesus said and did and endured and testified to in the one he called Abba. Well, if you want people that are deeply engaged in communicating in our current medium and you want to support it so that, so I don't know, maybe what pops up in your algorithm doesn't make you want to hurl and call Jesus and say, hey, hey, you need some new PR, then uh, maybe you should be be a member supporting what's going on at Project Amplify. I'm excited about it. So check it out. Yeah, let, let's get real pragmatic for a second. I, I love being pragmatic. I love asking, how do we actually make the change? It seems like I've come across two different ways of, of approaching change, right? There's my evangelical days, which kind of pulls from the Billy Graham idea of we have to change hearts to, to change society. And then we have maybe this other way we can say of thinking about, well, if we change laws and systems, you know, almost like what the government did with civil rights, right? Where they say, okay, no, we're going to mandate integration actually happens, right? And so I'm curious for you, what what does the pragmatic look like? So let, let's say I read your book, I go to your website, I guess I sign up for something and I'm part of, uh, is it in my local community? Is it on your website? And then are we advocating for maybe certain political change? Are we advocating just for a heart change in my local community that hopefully leads to political change? What does the pragmatic look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we, every nonprofit talks about their theory of change, right? You know, and yeah. we have a theory of change and our theory of change is really that through these shared experiences, three things happen. One is there is an individual transformation that happens. So I do agree. I think it's a both and. I mean, you talked about, is it hearts and minds? Is it systems and structures? And I think it's both. And I think it starts with that personal transformation. That personal transformation could be coming alive to how your story plays a role in this. That personal transformation could happen through a cross-cultural relationship where you're understanding a lived experience that you've not been proxy to before. But then from that place, how does that begin to impact what we would call equitable institutions? I would hope that people going through Undivided, and we're starting to see this, are starting to think differently about things that happen in their institution, in their church. Like, hey, it's it's not just about how do we diversify the worship team, but it's about how can we think about really having a more racially inclusive environment in our church in terms of our liturgy and how we pray and how all of the things, right? Leadership structures, et cetera. And then right. how do we activate people to go beyond the walls of the church and create just communities? So if a person were to read our book, I would say, here's a, here's a path. It doesn't have to be the only path, but a path would be, we'd love to be in partnership with that person and say, let's do an undivided cohort experience in your church. Let's start with the willing Let's start with, you know, 25 or so people who would be willing to go on this journey, a diverse group of people. Maybe you need to partner across churches to make that happen, given your church's makeup. We've had that happen. We just last year had 70 pastors in the Knoxville area go through Undivided together. A lot of those were AME pastors, along with other pastors from white evangelical congregations who already have a set of relationships, but Undivided was able to catalyze them to think about the work that they could do around racial healing and justice. And then from that place, it goes to what Troy said, building power. How do those people begin to imagine? What is it like to change our community? So in Cincinnati last year, we had a group of alumni from Undivided that are part of kind of a justice team effort we have here, do a listening campaign. They spent three months just listening to neighbors in the community. Hey, what are the needs? What are the things that are emerging? And out of that, 
really is how that team came up with affordable and attainable housing is a need, a justice need in our community. And now they're beginning to build strategies around how they can go about that to make a change in our city, in Cincinnati. And so that could be a path for someone coming into Undivided, but it really is about relationships. And then through those relationships, building power to create real change where everybody can flourish. Yeah. And, and Tim, if I could just add, cause I'm a, I've been doing community organizing for 15 years. I studied the civil rights movement, wrote a book on the Montgomery bus boycott and the movement around Dr. King. I am a big believer in systemic and structural change uh, and the importance of doing work upstream to bring justice. I don't think it's possible without that work. And I think the church has been woefully oblivious or actually gotten in the way of change and often use That's things a nice like, way oh, of putting it. it yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, actually, the church has been all too often a fountainhead of racial injustice from 100%. slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration to the vilification of migrants and immigrants and on down the line. And I am convinced now more than ever that people are eternal and systems and structures are not. And so there's something at the end of the day, we were part of an organization in Cincinnati that got the community to vote to raise taxes to fund preschool. So there are a thousand plus children in Cincinnati this year and every year that have access to high quality preschool, many of them black and brown children uh, that that it's making a difference in their lives. So it's, it's affecting people. So system change really is about affecting lives and the material conditions and experiences they have so they can know the, the abundant life that I think God wants for us and Jesus came to, to invite us into. And the things that stick are the transformation in people that are part of making it happen. Part of how injustice thrives is people feel powerless They feel like they are victims. They feel like there's nothing they can do to bring change. Our political process, our two-party system is set up to make us feel powerless and like we have no role. And so starting at the most local level, the community level, the city, the county, even the state, how can we come together and say, no, that's a lie. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control or discipline we can actually come together and bring change. So helping people move past, go through that journey from powerless to claiming power in community across race and ethnicity for the sake of the kingdom, we think is amazingly redemptive. Last thing I will say is power is often manipulated and abusive. So mm. power has to be understand deeply rooted in the fruit of the spirit, deeply rooted in the nature and character of God. I, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I track with that. Yeah, no, that I think that's really good. It's I think both and is the the approach a hundred percent. I gotta be. I'm kind of just curious. Do you get a lot of resistance with this approach in in the spaces that that, that you're trying to change? Like, what what what's the temperament like? Yes, yes, we get res- <laughs> yes, we get resistance <laughs> for sure. You know, I think I forget who said it, but like you know, people don't give up power voluntarily, and so I think some of the yeah. resistance. Yeah, some of the resistance that we experience is, you know, we've had experiences of being in church context where, you know, there's a a willing and committed kind of lay community. But when leadership sees, oh, man, this this is going to affect this or that, 
we'll, we'll start to get some pushback. And, and one right. of the things we're recognizing and focusing on is how do we shepherd the shepherds? So, mm. you know, when I think about that pushback, a lot of that is based on the leader's fear of either not feeling like my people are getting ahead of me. Like, I don't know enough about this to lead well in this, or I, I feel like there's something at risk. I mean, let's be clear. Most pastors who spoke out in 2020 about any of them experienced two responses. There were some people who were celebrating and there were other people who left. And some of the people who left, left with big checkbooks. And so one of the things we're doing this year is we're pulling together kind of a grass tops approach. And we want to walk with some pastors on how do you lead well on race in the midst of this polarized 2024? What does that look like? And part of that is going to be bringing them together for training and also for the community that comes from being with other people who are dealing with that tension. But then we also want this to be a place where these pastors have a chance to hold each other up to, to be courageous. We know that it's going to come. We know the time is going to come in this year where there's going to be a, a, a call of courage on pastors. And we want to be a space where pastors are learning how to do that. It's one of the reasons why we're going to finish this experience with taking them to Montgomery, Alabama, because Troy and I believe that's one of the places that are really a spiritual ground zero for what does it look like for followers of Jesus to do the work of racial justice. I mean, so many of the people in the civil rights movement, not just King, everybody, there were so many people who were shaped and formed by a powerful view of the kingdom of God, whether they use those words or not. And that was what fueled them through the resistance that they faced. And so, yes, we face resistance, but we believe that the same ways that they got over the same spiritual tools they leaned into are the ways that we can continue to move forward in this work. And one other thing just on that, Tim, uh, I've been working and trying to organize in and around evangelical spaces back when I was a pastor in Cincinnati and then in the early 2010s. The amount of time that I used to have to spend debating words and terms, I don't have to spend that time anymore. Hmm. People who are evangelicals who maybe are listening to the new evangelicals podcast or who have read books and there's a whole group of folks who have, who've come out of evangelicalism who don't need to basically dissect words and like try to get into the nuance. They're clear. Yeah. We're under threat. We have a church tradition that is traded uh, our birthright of being followers of Jesus for the kingdom of God for a false ideology and nationalism that is bankrupt. We don't have time for those debates about what a word means. Mm. We need to get about the work of actually uh, experiencing racial just uh, racial healing in our lives and doing work in our institutions and our communities to demonstrate the way of Jesus. So in some ways, this is a very clarifying and freeing time for those who are clear to really move them uh, and get them activated for racial justice. That makes sense. I think that's great. I just thinking out loud here, but there are times where I really wonder if the white evangelical church culture that we, that has existed for a long time is redeemable. You know, I think about just what it was built on so much of it to your point in, in our history. I mean, J Russell Hawkins book, the Bible told them. So is just a really illuminating read of of just how entrenched white evangelicalism was in in fighting against things like integration and i think seeing groups like turning point and others picking up steam and getting more entrenched into white evangelical spaces and seeing a lot of mega church pastors hop on board and and just tolerate that kind of racist language from people like charlie and that crowd 
it's discouraging. And I think it's always, of course, worth trying to change. And I just wonder in a hundred years from now where we're going to be, you know, because it seems like we're in, we're on this, this carousel of just lunacy. And a lot of the things that MLK and, and, and those folks were fighting for, we're still fighting for. And it's like, oh my God, like it's, it's encouraging to know that we're not the only ones who see this. It's discouraging to think that we're in 2024 and we still can't get affordable health care, that we're still fighting racial injustice, that we're still fighting a massive wage gap between the average white worker versus the average black worker, et cetera. And some of these spaces, unfortunately, in the white evangelical church are, as you put it earlier, Troy, so politely, you know, are getting in the way <laughs> um, or, or in, 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 in the worst case scenario, they are actually fighting against that progress. And that's, that's difficult to reckon with, reckon with when you realize that's what shaped you as a human and a Christian, which is my story. Yeah. And mine too. Go ahead, Chuck. I was just going to say, and as I hear that, there's the part of me that recognizes that the way of Jesus is often the way of death, burial and resurrection. And so I think there's, there are some things that are going to die. There are some things that are not going to go forward. You had Russell Moore on your podcast, and I thought it was interesting. He said, there's really no such thing as the white evangelical church. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a really enlightening comment, meaning meaning, the church is something bigger. It can't be contained by just those terms and terminology. And so I really believe that in this season, to Troy's point, it's ripe for resurrection. The question is, what do we need to let die so that when right. God is emerging can birth and, and be brought to life? And just recognizing that evangelicalism itself, and Sung Chan Ra wrote about this a decade or more ago in the next evangelicals. Yep. This is not a majority white movement uh, going forward. 100%. And so there's opportunity and risk there. Anti-blackness uh, and white supremacy and white nationalism are exuding faith communities that are not white. And so we got to pay attention to that in terms of immigrant and even sometimes black communities who are adopting some of those trappings uh, and there's amazing opportunity. And so I love this idea of composting. How do we compost mm -hmm. this? Which is going to be my best recollection is a little smelly and a little messy and a little dirty and very redemptive. So there's always a remnant as Chuck said. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, the book is Living Undivided, Loving Courageously for Racial Healing and Justice. Chuck and Troy, it was great having you on the podcast. If folks want to find more about your work, where can they go? Yeah, Tim, thanks for having us. Thanks for the work that you're doing in the world. We got a chance to share um, just one of our teammates' gratitude for the work you do. So I want to say thank you for that. If people want to connect with us, the easiest way to do that is go to undivided.us, undivided.us, and you'll find information on purchasing the book there, but more importantly, how to connect with our organization there. We do a lot and we'd love to partner with some of your listeners. And awesome. We, later, later this year, we're going to be launching a, a public monthly gathering. So stay tuned. It'll be virtual for some worship and just grounding in what the Undivided Movement's all about. So it's a great first place uh, that we're creating this year, Tim, for those who are saying, I need community. I'm, I'm feeling isolated, alone. I've lost my community in my local church. We want to begin to build and reconstruct some of that. And hopefully help people find local communities as well where they can grow as followers of Jesus. Love it. Thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.